Today we've got another episode in our series called Storylines. It's about people, places, and things that show up repeatedly in the Bible and that also have special significance and meaning. Today we're going to explore part one of mountains. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. By my count, there are 35 named mountains in the Bible, and this doesn't include any of the places that are referred to as hills. Almost all of these 35 named mountains are mentioned in the Old Testament. Only four are specifically identified in the New. We want to explore seven of these mountains, all having major significance. In this episode, we'll take a look at the first four. In the next episode, we'll cover the other three. Keep in mind that this storyline isn't really about a piece of real estate, as as though the mountains themselves are what's significant. Rather, the significance is in what happens on these mountains. Very simply put, big things happen on big mountains, and no pun intended. On the mountains of the Bible, we discover the intersection between the things of God and the things of this world. In my Storylines podcast on storms, one of the storms we looked at was the rainstorm and resulting worldwide flood at the time of Noah. Let's jump back into that, to the end of that story and explore our first mountain, Mount Ararat. In Genesis 8, we read, The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Did you catch that? The Bible doesn't call it Mount Ararat, but rather the mountains of Ararat, suggesting perhaps a larger geographical area. Now, although the Bible never uses the exact phrase Mount Ararat, it does exist. It is a mountain of two dormant volcanic cones, one called Greater Ararat and the other Little Ararat. It's a beautiful snow-capped mountain, almost 17,000 feet in elevation, and it is located in the extreme east of Turkey, bordered by Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran. Now, whether the Ark came to rest on Greater Ararat or Little Ararat or the Ararat region doesn't really matter. Remember, the real estate isn't important. What happened there is. After coming to rest on the ground, Noah didn't immediately kick open the door of the Ark and let everybody out. 
Noah and his family would actually stay in the ark for several more months as the earth dried out. Did you know that from the time it started to rain until Noah and his family left the ark, along with the animals, it was just a little over a year in length? That's a long time to basically live in a zoo. If you listen to my Storylines podcast on storms, you will recall the reason why God sent this worldwide flood. The world had become very wicked and filled with violence. So God decided it was time for a restart. And with the ark coming to rest at Ararat, this was a new beginning. God told Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. But that's not all the Lord God said. After Noah had built an altar and offered a sacrifice, the Lord made another promise. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And and, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And the Lord God had still one more thing to say and to promise. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the sign of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature with you, a covenant for generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow is the sign of God's promise. And the next time you see one, stop and pause to consider this promise of God. The Lord's promises at Ararat remind us of his patience, his mercy, and his love for mankind and for all he made. Mount Ararat marked a new beginning for God's creation. The second mountain we're going to explore is known by two different names. One name is Mount Horeb, the other name is Mount Sinai. The vast majority of Bible scholars, based upon the biblical text, believe Horeb and Sinai are one and the same. This mountain is also known by another name. It's called the Mountain of God. I mentioned earlier that big things happen on mountains. Well, on Mount Sinai, really, really, really big things happened In fact, Sinai Horeb is quite unique in what occurs there. As you listen to the events that took place on this mountain, see if you can figure out what makes the events so unique. The first time either Sinai or Horeb occur in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 3. It involved Moses, who was tending sheep for his father-in-law. The chapter opens with, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Recall how Moses, who was born in Egypt and raised in Pharaoh's household, ended up in Midian. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian man beating on an Israelite. Moses got angry. He killed the Egyptian, 
and hid the body in the sand. When Pharaoh learned what Moses had done, he wanted Moses killed. So Moses had to flee, and he fled to Midian. Midian was the area to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Check it out on a map. Today, that area is the northwest corner of the country of Saudi Arabia. Mount Horeb was west of Midian, on the west side of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of Egypt today. Anyway, at Mount Horeb, Moses saw a bush on fire, but the bush didn't burn up. He went and checked it out. From within the bush, God spoke to Moses, told him to stop walking toward the bush and to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. God appeared to Moses and commissioned him to go back to Egypt and lead God's oppressed people out of Egypt to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After Moses and God had a rather lengthy conversation, and it was lengthy because Moses was trying to get out of his assignment, but in the end, Moses did what God directed him to do. The next time we hear about Mount Sinai is after the Israelites escaped Egypt and started heading to the Promised Land. They arrived at Mount Sinai and set up camp. Moses told the Israelites that God would descend on the mountain in three days. The book of Exodus tells us, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. There was much more to happen on this mountain over the following weeks. God would give Moses the Ten Commandments and hundreds of other laws that would govern every aspect of the Israelites' lives. When Moses didn't come down from the mountain for several weeks, Moses' brother Aaron and the people fashioned a golden idol in the shape of a calf. When Moses finally came down the mountain, he saw a rowdy dance party around the calf. And Moses got so angry that he smashed the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were engraved. After God sent a plague and the people repented of their idolatry, Moses returned up the mountain again to receive more of God's laws, get a new set of stone tablets, and experience a shaded glimpse of God's glory. That's Moses. The prophet Elijah also spent some time at this mountain. And what caused Elijah to go to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb? Well, that'll be explored in our next mountain. Anyway, Elijah arrived at the mountain one day and spent the night in a cave. Then we're told that the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. The Lord then gave Elijah directions as to where to go and what to do next. And one of Elijah's assignments was to anoint his own successor as a prophet, a man by the name of Elisha. So what makes Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, unique? Well, both Moses and Elijah experienced the actual presence and person of God on this mountain. No wonder it is called the Mountain of God. The third mountain we want to explore is Mount Carmel, a 1,500-foot-high limestone mountain located in the northwest coastal plain of Israel. Mount Carmel is referenced in the Bible as a, a symbol of beauty, probably because of its many oak, pine, olive, and laurel trees. The name Carmel is a Hebrew word for garden land. King Solomon, in his Song of Songs, praised his loved one by saying, Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. I am sure in Solomon's day that was a compliment. Not sure it would be so today. Mount Carmel is best known for an amazing event that happened there. During Elijah's time, the worship of false gods was prevalent, especially the worship of Baal. Baal was a Canaanite and Phoenician deity, and in archaeological finds, Baal took the shape of a bull or ram and had associations with fertility. On Mount Carmel, Elijah challenged King Ahab's 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. King Ahab was a wicked king who worshipped Baal instead of Yahweh. The contest was to determine whether Baal or whether Yahweh was the God who was in control of the kingdom of Israel. According to 1 Kings chapter 18, the challenge was to see which God could light a sacrifice using fire. The prophets of Baal went first. They prepared a bull and put it on their altar. All morning they cried to Baal to light the sacrifice on fire. But nothing happened. Elijah suggested that they shout louder because maybe Baal was sleeping or maybe on a trip somewhere. This went on all afternoon until evening and still no fire from Baal. Now it was Elijah's turn. The first thing he did was to repair the altar to Yahweh, which was broken down. He rebuilt the altar using 12 stones, one for each tribe in Israel. Then he had a trench dug around it. He laid the wood on the altar along with the cut-up pieces of the bull, and then he told the servants to douse the altar with water that they likely got from a nearby spring. Do it again, Elijah said. Do it a third time. There was so much water that the trench around the altar was filled. Then Elijah prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. The response of the people whom Elijah had invited to witness this challenge 
responded by saying, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, it's Yahweh, He is God. God wanted idolatry stamped out in Israel, so He directed Elijah to kill the 450 prophets of Baal. At Elijah's direction, the crowd led these prophets away to the Kishon Valley, where they were killed. But why didn't Elijah just kill them on the mountain? Well, the mountain was a holy place with an altar to Yahweh. Another reason may have been that the Kishon Valley and its river had historical significance for the people of Israel. It was where the judge and prophet Deborah and General Barak defeated Sisera and his Canaanite armies. In Deborah's victory song after the battle, she mentions the Kishon River sweeping away Sisera's army. One other event occurred that day on Mount Carmel, this between Elijah and Ahab. Israel had been experiencing three years of drought. Elijah informed Ahab that the drought was ending that very day. Storms were coming. He told Ahab that he ought to hop into his chariot and head home to Jezreel before the rains came and prevented him from doing so. And the rains did come. King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel were angry that their prophets of Baal were all dead. So they ordered that Elijah should be put to death as well. Because of the threat to his life, Elijah fled. And guess where he headed? He headed south to Mount Sinai. Mount Carmel was the mountain on which God demonstrated his awesome power in sending fire and rain. What's going through your mind right now as you've heard about the events that occurred on this mountain? For me, it is knowing that we have a God who is all-powerful. He is in control of the forces of nature and rules this world to accomplish His will. What a God we have. The fourth mountain we want to explore is not specifically identified by name in the Bible. So we can't be absolutely sure of the location of this mountain. However, for the last 1,600 years, Christians have called it the Mount of Beatitudes, also identified as Mount Aramis. This is thought to be the setting for Jesus' most famous teaching. The Mount of Beatitudes, one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel, overlooks the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, located between the towns of Gennesaret and Capernaum. Within a few miles of the Mount of Beatitudes, are the scenes of many events in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. For example, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, healing the centurion's servant, healing a man born blind, along with the feeding of the 5,000. Early on in Jesus' ministry in Galilee, he started to attract a large crowd of followers. So one day he went up on a mountainside and sat down to teach primarily his disciples, although a large crowd was there listening as well. What he taught them, we call the Sermon on the Mount. The opening section of Jesus' teaching is called the Beatitudes, a word that means blessings. It is this opening section of Jesus' teaching that gives the mountain its name. In the Beatitudes, Jesus described eight kinds of blessings that already belong to every follower or disciple of Christ. 
The Beatitudes don't tell us how to be blessed, but that we already are. Then Jesus goes on to teach how a believer in Christ, a disciple, thinks and acts and lives. The word disciple is connected to the word discipline. Disciples of Christ practice disciplines for their own spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others. Spiritual disciplines are part and parcel of a Christian's life. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, urged him to train yourself to live a godly life. So let's take a look at some of the spiritual disciplines that Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Jesus never said, if you want to be salt or if you want to be light. No, it's not optional. Followers of Christ are salt and light. Next, Jesus talked about murder, adultery, and divorce. Now, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, we all agree that these things are wrong and harmful, right? But Jesus raised the bar for his followers. Disciples of Jesus don't murder, but they also don't hate. Disciples of Jesus don't commit adultery, but they also don't lust in their heart. Disciples of Jesus know that divorce is wrong, but they are also aware of how divorce can ruin reputations. Some of the other spiritual disciplines that Jesus taught involve the taking of oaths, not seeking revenge, showing love to enemies, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, avoiding worry, not judging others, and watching out for false prophets. Jesus ended his teaching on the Mount of Beatitudes by reminding his disciples that those who build their lives on Jesus and his word will be able to withstand any of life's storms because they built their lives on a rock instead of shifting sand. I encourage you to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, to see how a disciple of Jesus thinks, acts, and lives. It's a treasure that we have from the Mount of Beatitudes. By the way, this mountain is also thought to have been the place where Jesus met his disciples after his resurrection and then commissioned them to go and make disciples of all nations. We don't know that for sure, but it may very well have been. Mountains. It's one of the Bible's storylines. If you'd like to explore further what happened on these four mountains, we have some great Time of Grace video devotional series. Check out the episode notes for links to these videos. And if you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for part two of Mountains from our Bible Threads series entitled Storylines. God bless.